0: use the proclamation of your word to build up your church for your greater fame and glory in this place and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, many Christians love Bible conferences. I, 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 I love good Bible conferences. A couple of weeks ago, we had our annual Bible conference here um, last week I was in Massachusetts speaking at a Bible conference. Uh, there are greater and grander Bible conferences. Some of you are going to the Strange Fire conference in California this week. Um, maybe you've been to a Desiring God conference. They have a couple every year. Or you've been to the Together for the Gospel conference or the Gospel Coalition conference or the Legionnaire conference and the multiple conferences they have. conferences, conferences. Conferences. There are some great conferences. And why do Christians enjoy conferences? Well, we, we like to get together and get away. We like to get, get together and find encouragement. We like to hear from some of the most formidable, respected Bible scholars so that we can understand the Bible better, so we can live and breathe and, and be for the glory of Christ. But imagine if you could go to a Bible conference that would be like no other Bible conference. What if you could go to a Bible conference where there would be true living apostles? I'd go. I'd spend great amounts of money to go to a conference like that. Probably you too. Um, Let's imagine that this conference, like no other conference, not only has living, genuine apostles there who've seen the risen Christ. At this conference, let's have the conference be in the so-called Holy Land. It's in Israel. It's in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem. I love Israel. I love going there. So I definitely want to go to this conference. You probably would want to go to not only apostles, not only in Israel. At this Bible conference, you have the most formidable Old Testament scholars who can help you understand the big picture of the Old Testament. They can help you understand the most obscure little passage of the Old Testament, those kinds that just you have a real hard time figuring out. We're going to have Old Testament scholars at this Bible conference That can give you, how about this, the infallible interpretation. Get me on a jet airplane. I want to go to that conference. You'd want to go to that conference too. But let's make it even better. At this conference where prayer is given to God, you can not only know that your prayers would be heard, but you can know that where prayer is given to God, God will answer audibly for everyone to hear. Uh Uh-huh, you're wanting to go more and more. Not only that, just to make it better at this conference. God will audibly tell you His will for your life. Sounds pretty good. Sounds really good. We'd all want to go. But I'm here to tell you there is no such conference. <laughs> regardless of what the websites might say, regardless of what the flyers might say, there is no such conference there once was. It was called the Transfiguration Conference. Luke chapter 9. If you're not already there, go there. The things I've been describing to you are things that happened at this, I'm calling it a conference. I'm calling it the Transfiguration Conference. And by the way, the word Transfiguration is um, not used by Luke, but it's used in Matthew. And uh, they're, they're, uh, the original Greek word is the word metamorphosis, where we get our English word. Hello, metamorphosis. Um, just comes over directly. Translators have not used that because sometimes that, that word has other baggage. And so they've used a more um, stately, dignified word uh, to preserve more of the mystery involved. And they've used that word transfiguration. Something Extraordinary. Something changes at this conference Not like metamorphosis like we would think today But something amazing Something extraordinary changes At what Christians call the transfiguration What Matthew calls the transfiguration Now as we work our way through this passage It's Luke 9, 28-36 We read it for our scripture reading We're going to take this approach We're going to hear from five different voices So if you're a note taker There are going to be five voices we're going to hear from One is actually Inaudible. So there are four voices, but we'll say there are five because we'll call it the voice of silence. And what the what all five voices have in common is they all point to and talk about the one we don't hear from. And in this account, we don't hear from Jesus. Even though it's all about Jesus, everyone else is talking about Him. He doesn't talk, but He's central to the whole thing. He's the one who's transfigured. And this, I have to tell you, is just, it, it's a cool passage. Um, I told my wife this morning, I said, this is a cool sermon. I don't think I've ever said that before in my life. Um, not because I'm preaching it. I mean, I know I'm cool and she knows I'm cool, but, uh, but that's beside the point. It's extraordinary what happens to Jesus here. And I mean that literally, it's extraordinary. Jesus wasn't ordinary. He was extraordinary. And now here we have the extraordinary one appearing Extraordinary. So it's double extraordinary. It's a cool text. It's a cool passage. It's a cool thing that happened to help us, to help them, but to help us see Jesus for who he really is. To see Jesus for who he really is, perhaps like we haven't seen him before. How about this? To read our Bibles better. This is a great little lead in and promo piece for our Sunday night series that could be entitled Reading Our Bibles Better or More more Faithfully Like Christians, The Great Drama of Redemption. So voice number one um, is least consequential, um, but in another sense, very, very important. Voice number one is the voice of Luke. And I mention this um, mainly for you who are just joining us. The opening verses of our text, um, the narrator, the historian, Luke, is describing some details about where it happened, who's involved, we hear the voice of Luke. And if you're just joining us, I want to just let you know and remind the rest of you, the voice of Luke is really important. The the, the historian here is very important. Luke, according to Colossians chapter 4, is a medical doctor. And he's moonlighting, if you will, as a historian. Because, according to chapter 1 of Luke, he's giving a credible, detailed, description of what happened in the life of Jesus to a dignitary okay why is a medical doctor playing historian because he's he's been asked to and a medical doctor though a medical doctor then doesn't know all the things that we might know today if we're medical doctors they 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 weren't quacks they were respectable doctors then and they're given therefore if they're respectable to details to accuracy because health and life depends upon it well spiritual health and spiritual life depends upon it no one better than Dr. Luke to give an accurate historical account of what happened so the voice of Luke is important verse 28 says now about eight days after these sayings he speaking of Jesus took with him Peter and John and James three disciples who were going to become apostles and went up on the mountain to pray to pray We don't know what mountain it was. Praise Jesus, because if we did, we'd build shrines there, Um, like we do everywhere else where we think certain biblical things happened or where biblical things happened. might be Mount Tabor, uh, but it's in the Galilean region. It's, It's irrelevant, or it would have been recorded. So southern Galilee is the region where Jesus was last seen, so it seems to be a high mountain, a mountain in southern Galilee. There are multiple options. Mount Tabor is the traditional historic one. Verse 29 says, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. There it is. There's the transfiguration. That's what Matthew would call it. Luke doesn't. He uses different verbiage. Maybe some suggest he doesn't use that exact metamorphosis word because of even then what the baggage might have entailed given Luke's audience and where they live. So he doesn't use that loaded metamorphosis word that could have been used by other religions for other things. And so he just describes it. His face is altered and, and, and something changes and something is radical to the point where it even affects his clothing and his clothing became dazzling white, verse 29 says. It's brilliant. Jesus has always been brilliant and now he's extraordinarily brilliant. He's always been extraordinary and now he's extraordinarily extraordinary. And there's something about Jesus that, that in appearance looks different than he used to look up on this mountain. We'll talk about what exactly it is in a moment. We have a pretty good um, way of understanding this, even from our text. But before we actually get to that, if you're a good student of Scripture, and some of you are, some of you aren't. Some of you might be your first exposure to the Bible. Some of you are on your hundredth time reading through the Old Testament and everything in between here. So let me just help you out at least a little bit Since Moses is going to appear, it's important that we maybe make a connection between this this amazing, brilliant appearance of Jesus and Moses, because Moses on historic occasion has looked brilliant with light shining on him. Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. And yet there's something greater here. Again, if you're an Old Testament student and we all at least need to pretend to be for right now so we can understand this passage better, So whether you are one, or you just play one on TV, or you just pretend, let's just pretend at least. There's a history, there's a pattern of something extraordinary beyond the Moses extraordinary in the Old Testament that has to do with this kind of amazing look, this amazing appearance, this amazing light. Theologians call it the Shekinah glory. God showing himself in an extraordinary way. God giving a glimpse of himself. In a way that we can actually see. Fully revealed, no, but in a way that we can see. Listen to what Phil Riken says about this in his commentary. The disciples were seeing what Moses saw when God descended on the tabernacle, Exodus 40. What Solomon saw when God's presence filled Israel's house of worship, Second Chronicles 7. And what Ezekiel saw rising from the temple on the wings of the cherubim, Ezekiel 10. They were seeing the glory of Almighty God, the His Shekinah glory, the radiant cloud that gave people a visible manifestation of his invisible majesty. And I don't know anyone who would disagree with Riken's take, essentially. There's an Old Testament precedence. God showing himself. In this amazing, unmatched kind of way, a glimpse of his of his glory in a way that human beings can't look at fully there 's a glimpse of it when here jesus is is transfigured he 's transformed in some extraordinary way that 's not normal but I think there's even a better well not not better but there, there's another hint that 's more than a hint that can help us understand it more fully i 'm not Saying it's different than that, but there's more to it. Because look at our context. Look back at the verse before our verses, which would be verse 27. This this helps us. You, if you isolate this verse, it's very confusing. But if you keep it in the flow of the narrative, it's not. It really helps. Look at verse 27 of Luke 9. But I tell you, Jesus said... Truly, there are some standing here, he's talking about his disciples in particular, some of them in particular, who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That that That's super helpful. Isolated, it's not. You're like, that, that didn't happen. Those guys all died, and, and, and the, the kingdom it didn't happen. But there's a sense in which it did. Because Jesus manifests, He makes Himself seen, visible, known, understood in this extraordinary way, a way that wouldn't happen fully until He's resurrected in a glorified state, and then He's waiting to come back, having ascended. It's a glimpse of the kingdom. It's a glimpse of the king and his glorified state. It's a glimpse of the way Jesus will look always and forever later on. Just further building the argument that he really is Messiah. He really is Messiah. He really is the Christ. And the Christ is the one who will rule and reign and bring perfect justice, perfect equity. He'll make every wrong right. He will deliver his people Not only temporarily, but ultimately. And here He gives us a glimpse. This is to build and bolster their faith in Him and our faith in Him because it's before eyewitnesses. His Shekinah glory. Now let's look at another voice. It's actually two voices. The voices of Moses and Elijah. But let's keep it simple. The voice of Moses and the voice of Elijah. Verse 30. And behold... Two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah. Again, you never read the Old Testament before, you go, Moses and Elijah. Big deal. Behold Moses and Elijah. Let's at least pretend like we've read our Old Testament before. Some of you have a lot, have a lot. some of you maybe never. Behold Moses and Elijah. You want to talk about the, the, the two big hitters in the Old Testament? You want to talk about the the big guns in the Old Testament? You've got Moses and you've got Elijah. And so he says, Behold Moses and Elijah. I mean, you have the entire Old Testament department. Okay? Speaking of this conference. The best of the best of the best of the best. The guys who actually wrote it. And here we have, Behold Moses and Elijah. They're talking with him. They're talking to Jesus. Verse 31 says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish. Notice he's going to accomplish his departure. They're talking to Jesus about Jesus accomplishing his departure at Jerusalem. And look, some of you have a footnote in your Bible or a little marginal note. I'm preaching from the English Standard Version today. Um, That word departure, translated departure... You might find that little footnote that you can't read if your eyesight is like mine these days. It says, or Exodus. And you know why it says or Exodus? Because the Greek word, I'm reading it right there, is Exodus. Put that thought on hold for a second. It becomes significant and important, especially since Moses is there. The Exodus. The deliverance of God of his people under the leadership of Moses? Wow. This is this is cool. Two major players in redemptive history past. Moses, if you want to just simplify, Moses stands for law. Just think Moses Law. Think Elijah to oversimplify prophets. Now Moses was a prophet as well. And you're just going to make it super simple. And by the way, believers and Jewish people talk that way then. You've got Moses and Elijah. You've got symbolic, emblematic of the law and the prophets. And guess what makes up the Old Testament? Shorthand. The law and the prophets. And so you, here you have Moses and Elijah. Moses stands for law. He's also the hero of the Exodus. He, he's he's the, the, the central figure of the Exodus. Elijah, again, representing the prophets. One of the very greatest prophets in the Old Testament. Not only is Elijah known as one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, he's also known in the Old Testament as a a prophet of the future. Looking forward, anticipating, waiting, ultimate better deliverance. Oh, this is so, so interesting that they're there with Jesus, talking to Jesus about His Exodus. His Exodus, again, look at verse 30. It's so fascinating, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This is what is so cool. The Old Testament faculty there, affirming Jesus. He's claiming to be the Messiah, the deliverer, the long expected one. And who's on his team? Who's on his side to say, that's right? affirmation. Moses and Elijah. And they're dialoguing with Jesus about His exodus, about His deliverance, that He would accomplish. Where is He going to accomplish it? He's going to accomplish it in Jerusalem. The ultimate exodus is accomplished by Jesus. Moses would want you to know that. The voice of Moses, though we don't hear what he discussed with Jesus as word for word, he's talking to Jesus about this. The greater Exodus. Elijah is talking to Jesus about this. Very cool. Have I said that this is cool? I just want, I'm just i having a cool moment. This is one of those times where you think, why, why haven't I thought about this before? And it's really important that we understand a little bit more about that conversation. If you're a person who draws in your Bible or writes in your Bible, I would suggest to you drawing a line from verse 30 or, or across the page, however, whatever it takes to get to verse 22. <laughs> okay. There's a context to understand this by better um, and more fully And there they're talking to Jesus about his exodus, and what is that exodus that's going to happen in Jerusalem? It's it's already been talked about in verse 22, and it just gets cooler, because in verse 22, Jesus says, the Son of Man, that Old Testament messianic title for himself, the 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 deliverer, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. That's the exodus that he's talking about. Where is that going to happen? It's going to happen in Jerusalem or outside the city gates. But the point is it's Jerusalem. And you go, this is extraordinary. Not only does Jesus look extraordinary, but what they're talking about is extraordinary. It should, by way of application, have an extraordinary way on how you even think about Moses. Now you think about people like Elijah. They're bearing witness It's not news to them. Think about that. It's not news to them. And Jesus has Moses and Elijah show up and he's like, alright, you guys have been off track your whole ministry. Never mind that inspiration thing. Never mind that plan of God from before the foundation of the world thing. You guys have just been out of whack. and You had no clue, no idea. Because that's kind of how we read the Old Testament sometimes. They show up on board having a dialogue with Jesus about his exodus. I know that they do because of what Jesus says elsewhere. So let's cross-reference to three passages. John 5, John 1, and Luke 24. John 5, John 1, and Luke 24. More cool stuff about how central and significant Jesus is and how important it is for him to have Moses and Elijah standing there with him. Not only does it affirm Jesus, it also helps us even to understand those guys better. It helps us to understand biblical theology better and how the whole drama fits together. While there was a exodus of the people of God in the old, led by Moses, there's going to be an ultimate, better, complete, final exodus by the Son in anticipation. So, John chapter 5, verse 46 says, For if you believed Moses, this is Jesus speaking, um, he's kind of in scolding mode because of unbelief. Verse 46 again in John 5, For if you believed Moses, they're all claiming to believe Moses, but Jesus is exposing them. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you did not be- do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Hmm. I mean, You've got to do something with those words. That doesn't mean Moses understood everything. That doesn't mean, he, 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 he doesn't mean that. Even Peter later talks about how the Old Testament prophets didn't understand all of these things that they wrote about. But we have to conclude that what Jesus says in John 5 is true and what they're writing about ultimately is about him. Jesus says it right there in John chapter 5. John chapter 1 is similar. John 1.45. It says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. How about Luke 24? Luke 24, verses 25 to 27 is very similar. In verse 25 it says, And he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Verse 27 says of Luke 24, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It's fascinating. Takes him to the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. Think Moses and Elijah. And he says, let me show you how they were anticipating me. Let me show you how they were writing of me. And you might be sitting here this morning and thinking like I, I would be prone to think. Hey, wait a second. Wait a second. I thought the Old Testament was all about God's chosen nation, Israel. I thought the Old Testament was was about that. Well, it's true, it is. Pretty interesting, though, we're going to see God's chosen nation. Think of that word chosen. We're going to see God speak from heaven and talk about his son whom he has chosen. Uses the same terminology. Oh, and by the way, you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, but in the Old Testament, you know, Israel's known as the sun. And so I thought the Old Testament was all about the sun, S-O-N. Hosea 11. You're right. It's about the sun. But it would be a cosmic exercise in missing the point to think that it was ultimately central to everything about the chosen nation. It would be a cosmic exercise in in, in missing the point to say that ultimately it was about the Son, the nation Israel. Because God is going to say from heaven, this is my Son talking about Jesus. In essence saying, ultimate Son. I have chosen the ultimate one I've chosen. Everything else has been in Anticipation. It's been a foreshadowing. It's been waiting for the central one of all. But how apt are we to go backward and think about it wrongly? Everything centers on Jesus. Everything centers on His work. And we're going to see that. Let's move on now to number three, a third voice, the voice of Peter. If you've read the Bible much, you're going, "Uh uh-oh, this ought to be interesting. As many have said before, oh, the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth. Um, let me just tell you, he doesn't disappoint. Um, somebody once said to me as I was learning a sport, they said, well, just be consistent. Either consistently bad or consistently good. That way you won't hurt yourself or others. Um, Peter's pretty consistent. Verse 32 says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Oh, must be prayer. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but when they became fully awake... They saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. They saw his glory. They saw that anticipated uh, uh, kingdom revelation that we, we learned about earlier. They saw that. They saw a foretaste of things to come. They saw the preview Shekinah glory of Jesus. But not only that, if they saw his glory, they not only saw something in the future, because according to John chapter 17, they saw something that was true about Jesus from the past. Because remember in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying to his Father, he says, and I'm paraphrasing, Restore that glory to me that was mine before I came to earth. Something about his divine nature. John 17 verse 5. Before the world existed, Jesus had glory. This is something more than, than human. They see his glory. They're awoken to His glory. How about verse 33? And when the men were parting from Him, Peter said, this is where you duck, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then it says, not knowing what He said. It's a little bit obscure. Um, Mark's account says a little bit more, Mark 9, 6, uh, says regarding Peter, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So not knowing, not, not knowing what he said, he, he's so uh, having apoplexy and, and so confused and so terrified and scared about this whole event, uh, he, he blurted something out. When in doubt, say a whole bunch of stuff, is Peter's philosophy. Um, I think there's a proverb about that. stay here. Let's just, let's memorialize this event and just push pause on everything. This is good. What do you guys think? Is it good? It's a trick question. It's, it's, it's good. You're seeing Jesus like you've never seen him before. Like no one's ever seen him before. And, and, and you're getting a glimpse of his, his eternal glory. And you've got Moses and Elijah affirming that. It's a good thing. And Peter Peter's not completely lost it this, this is an extraordinary event. This is a great event. let's just stay here let us let, do what Israel has been used to been doing used to doing and that's let's commemorate this with a with a festival. the feast of booths uh, let's set up these tents to 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 acknowledge God's faithfulness in our in our wilderness wanderings and his deliverance and let's set up these tents and we'll just stay here. And by the way, from what we know about the Feast of Booths, not only do they commemorate the past and God's faithfulness, they anticipate His ultimate future deliverance. Peter's given a pretty good option here. Someone tried to explain uh, Feast of Booths, and they they tried to explain it to people like you and people like me, 21st century people who are not Jewish. And they said, it's kind of like Thanksgiving, but not. A lot of good that is. Why am I mentioning it? I don't know. I probably shouldn't have. Uh, we're, we're thanking God for what he's done in the past. It's an American holiday. We're thanking him for His the, the way way he's worked in, in our lives, and we're thankful for the freedoms that we have, and, and yet we're, we're we're reminding ourselves that we should be thankful for the future, and Christians at least look at it as his faithful promises in Christ. It's not a good illustration. <laughs> It's different. This is this is the Jewish people remembering God's faithfulness in their wilderness wanderings, His provisions with a view toward the future where it will be permanent, lasting, and full. Peter, let's just stop. You say, but now let me ask you, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with this option? Well, what's wrong with this option? For starters, there's only three disciples... Moses and Elijah and Jesus, there's three. And three, there's six people. But let's go deeper than that. What's wrong with this is, if there's going to be a crown, and Jesus' kingly rule and reign is going to actually be actualized, realized what has been promised, as it has been promised, like in Isaiah 42, before the crown, as many have said, there's got to be what? There's got to be a cross. There's got to be suffering first. It would be horrible if they stayed there. Not to mention the fact that Moses and Elijah aren't his peers. He's the greater one. Peter didn't really grasp, maybe he was still sleeping. But he didn't really grasp that in verse 31, Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exodus that's going to happen in Jerusalem. I mean, if God wouldn't have interrupted, and God is going to interrupt Peter. Praise God. But if God wouldn't have interrupted, Moses and Elijah would have been fully and completely qualified to tell Peter to shut his trap. So let's see. God interrupts. It's not the end game. Verse 34 says, And as he was saying these things, see, it is an interruption. It's awesome. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Voice number four, the voice of God. The voice of God. Verse 35 says, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. I want you to think like an Old Testament thinker. Moses and Elijah standing there. This is my son. Psalm 2, son. Messianic. Anticipating. You can think Hosea 11 if you want. Israel being the son. This is my son. Ultimate son. My, as it says, chosen one. Yes, you can think Israel. That's fine and dandy, but this is this is my ultimate chosen one. Listen to him. And it's not like Moses and Elijah would be saying, "Oh, but I care to differ." I mean, the assumption is Moses and Elijah, that's exactly what they would be saying. And now we hear from God Almighty from heaven saying, "This is my son. Listen to him." He's the ultimate one. He's the focus of everything that came before. He's the focus of Moses ultimately. The focus of Elijah ultimately. Listen to my son, my chosen one. Isaiah 42 verse 1. My chosen. It's a messianic prophecy. Listen to him. Think of this in terms of the tendency To see Moses as the end game. If you're Jewish. And supporting Moses are the prophets. Elijah. That's the tendency. He says this is my son. You listen to him. He's the end game. Deuteronomy 18.5 is a good cross reference. We won't take the time to turn there. But in Deuteronomy 18.15 it is. 18.15 the Lord your God will raise up. This is a Moses context. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to Him you shall listen. Now the reason that's important in Deuteronomy 18.15 is because in Acts chapter 3, Peter quotes that and says it's Jesus. I probably just lost you. That listen to Him is likely taken from Deuteronomy eighteen. Listen to Him. One will come after Moses. Listen to Him. He's the the one that gets the emphasis. Listen to Him. Oh, and we know that that's talking about Jesus, given how Peter uses it later in Acts chapter 3. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Now, here's a bad tendency that we all fall into. Maybe not all of us. Most of you are... Way ahead of me. A tendency that I fall into and you might fall into. Listen to Jesus. Okay, application for today is to leave Omaha Bible Church. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. That's important. That's the takeaway. Listen to Jesus. Jesus, I'm listening. Now, I think that's a good idea, by the way. The Spirit of God is indwelling us. He's also called the Spirit of Christ. Christ. I want to listen to Jesus. I want you to listen to Jesus. But I'm going to challenge that understanding of this passage. Even though that other thing that we do, listening to Jesus, is good. Think context here. What does it mean to listen to Jesus? We listen to Moses. We listen to the prophets. And they're dialoguing with Jesus about what? the subjective, everyday experience of living the Christian life. Nope. As important as that is, they're talking to Jesus in the context about what? They're talking to Jesus about His exodus, which is the ultimate exodus, the ultimate deliverance. And His exodus, the ultimate deliverance, is going to happen shortly in Jerusalem... That he will accomplish. They're talking to him. Please get this about his redemptive work. They're talking to, to him about his, his sure work of going to the cross to atone for sins. They're talking to him about that. They're talking to him about his saving work. And then the father says from, says from heaven, This is my son. Listen to him. What did he say earlier? I think it's in verse 22 that he must be delivered and that he must go. And then what do, what do well-meaning people like Peter say? Oh no, Lord, over my dead body. Listen, to, get out of the way. Listen to him. He really does need to go to Jerusalem. He really and truly does need to go and make atonement for sins. Listen to him. I think that's the idea in our context. So the moral of the story, if the takeaway, if you will, as you drive down the street today is, uh, okay, Lord, I'm listening. That's great. Do that. But that's not what this passage is getting at. The voice from heaven telling you God's will for your life. Listen to Jesus specifically is about His work of saving. Saving. Oh, but I know. I I read the law. I read Moses and the prophets, and there's a lot that we need to do. Listen to Jesus about his redemptive work that's done. And, 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 well, and here's how we work I listen to the law, and man, just more things to do. More things to do. Got to be faithful. And I haven't done a very good job. So I read the prophets, because what do the prophets do? Among other things, the prophets beat us up. The prophets scold the people of God for not being faithful. And so, man, I just, oh, what I need to do is have my devotions in law. And then I need to, when I don't do it because I'm not going to, if I'm honest, and then i need to have more devotions the next day out of guilt in the prophets. Guilt, 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 which drives me back. Oh, I'll do more, try harder. And by the way, that's not even what their intent was ultimately, right? But God from heaven says, listen to my son. In our passage, the Son must. The Son of Man must. Verse 22. And our tendency is, I must. Listen to Jesus. He must. We know the greater story. He did. Work is complete. You see, it's a cool passage. It's really a cool passage. It's a great passage. Our mindset is this interesting American get her done mindset. But it's not unique to America. They just didn't. Before our sophisticated culture say things like, get her done. That's just highbrow for keep the law. I will. I must. And when I don't, the prophets will guilt me into doing it. By the way, we've just taken the law and made it doable. And it's not doable to begin with. That's why Jesus came and said, you've got to be perfect. in the Sermon on the Mount. And then he said he came to fulfill the law. Listen to him. Another way really getting at the point of listen to Jesus in light of the bigger picture and what we know, trust in Jesus. You trust in him because his work is done. Earlier in the introduction I said, wouldn't it be great to go to a Bible conference where God audibly speaks from heaven and tells you his will for your life. You're like, yeah. Yeah. In effect he has. And you say, yeah, but I want the good part. Are you nuts? (sighs) Yeah, I know Jesus and, you know, perfect life, perfect death, resurrection. And, you know, I'm supposed to listen to him and not do law and prophets. But tell me the good stuff about me and my life. God, tell me your will for my life. That's a pretty Pat-centric universe, isn't it? Just tell me how I'm centered to the whole thing. Tell me how it works. Maybe what we need is, you know, a total radical shift. Think about Ephesians 1. Before the foundation of the world, God had this plan of redemption. That reaches from eternity past into eternity future. We we already know how the end ends in Revelation 20, 21 and 22. Central to everything is, is Jesus Christ, the Son, the Chosen One. And the Father says, listen to Him. So where are you going to find true significance in your life? Figuring out how you relate to him and he's the chief actor. He's the celebrity. We play supporting roles. And when we think we're the chief actors and actresses, no wonder we need counseling. We're living in grand delusion with spirits of grandeur. Where we find our true fulfillment is knowing our right place and we've been bought by the blood of the Lamb and we've been rescued. We've been part of His great exodus delivering work. And now I see Him for who He is and now I see things for what they really are and now I know God's will for my life. It's extraordinary. It's about Him, ultimately. And I need to listen to Him. Okay, finally, the voice, of, the voice of silence. Number five, the voice of silence. Verse 36 says, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And that's cool too. Proof of uh, progressive sanctification because Peter does what's right. The guy who can't keep his mouth shut does. Hope for you and hope for me. You're just quiet. It's awesome. It's the right response. I so like to see this and have you see it because our tendency and proneness is do more, try harder, I will, I can. Our proneness is to talk. And it seems God is at work in their lives because they don't. Because they got it. And so I suggest to you, welcome the silence. Just be quiet. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Listen to Jesus. About His work, not yours. It's a cool passage. What's interesting is they won't stay silent because there's going to come a time when they're going to talk about this, almost like Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about it. And not only that, they're going to talk about this amongst themselves. They're going to be commissioned by Jesus, having been quiet, to go and proclaim not themselves, not centrality of Moses, not centrality of Elijah. They're going to go proclaim Christ and tell other people to listen to him and his promises of redemption. There's a place for us to do that too. We've got to tell people about what it means to listen to Jesus. It's awesome. One more passage. If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. One more passage and then we'll wrap things up. It's really hard for us to actually look at this passage without 2 Peter. And so I want to make sure we do that. There's something in me. 2 Peter's toward the end of the Bible. If you just back up from Revelation, you'll you'll find it rather quickly through some small books. Now, there's something in me and probably something in you that says, man, I wish I could have experienced that. Nothing wrong with wanting that. Nothing wrong with having that desire. I would prefer to not be Peter in this scenario. I would like to be one of the other guys that get their mouth shut. Um, there's something in us that says, I could have only been there. How about this? We might even be tempted to think, if I could have only been there, I could be a more, a more effective witness. If I, could have, if I could still have the, you know, the smell of Shekinah glory on my shirt, I, I could reach more people. I mean, I, I might even be able to get a book deal, I might say if I'm honest, because then, then I'll reach more people for Jesus. Anyway, there's something in us that, that thinks, if we could have only, because that's where credibility is. And it's true, there's credibility in being an eyewitness. But Peter actually is going to want to help correct our thinking there. There's something Peter trusts more than his own experience. Is there anything you trust more than your own experience? Let's read about it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. "For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, Second Peter 116. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we preached the gospel to you, we weren't telling stories. It wasn't fables. There were eyewitnesses, actual historical events like we've been reading in Luke's account. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's important to have eyewitness account. We're thankful for eyewitness accounts. We, we live in a day where people say that, that, that there, there, were, there was no such thing as a concentration camp. There are eyewitnesses there were concentration camps, historic events. These things are real. We need eyewitnesses. There are eyewitnesses. Peter's an important eyewitness. Really happened. We needed to have really been eyewitnessed. Verse 17, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, eyewitnesses, super important, heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him. That's eyewitness talk. On the holy mountain. But then Peter just does one of those amazing, amazing things. And we have the prophetic word made fully confirmed. To which you will do well to pay attention. He's talking about Scripture. As to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice verse 19. And here Peter says, I experienced it. Let me put lots of emphasis on the fact that I was there. And you could interview the other disciples. They were there too. We actually heard it. It wasn't, it wasn't a, uh, an illusion. But he's writing to these believers. And he says, I'm going to tell you something I trust more than what I saw with my own eyes. Written revelation. Inscripturated revelation. God has a long track record of being able to do it. Throughout the whole Old Testament. And he can do it. Now, too, Peter is saying, and here's how inspiration works. You should be more confident in what has been written to you, Peter is saying, by these apostles, from this God with a track record of getting these written down the right way, than what I could tell you if I came to your church and did a Bible conference on the Transfiguration Conference. I don't know about you, but... It's pretty hard for me to honestly say I trust something more than first-hand experience. Peter wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. But this wasn't one of them. So don't leave moping. If I only had that experience, I could be a good, faithful witness to Jesus. You have a Bible, don't you? what Peter would want you to know is if you have a Bible, it's more reliable than someone's first-hand experience. You may or may not believe that. But that's what Peter wrote down talking about the transfiguration. Be bold, be courageous, be confident. A more sure word is what you have. Father, thank you so much for the delight that we have in Christ Jesus. And we're grateful for historic accounts and we're grateful for eyewitnesses. We're also grateful for your written revelation so that we might be able to know that it's not just based upon eyewitness testimony. It's actually it's based upon uh, your confirming word. We're grateful for Jesus, we're grateful for what he did, we're grateful for his sure work that was accomplished. Help us to be faithful in closing our mouths. And then opening them, boasting in Christ and not in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.